Going Postal Publishing, the Going Postal Cast, and Christopher Chapman present Incarceration, the serialized weekly podcast performed by the author, Christopher Chapman. For more information, visit www.goingpostalpublishing.com or email him at goingpostalpublishing at gmail.com. This podcast is not suitable for children. It has violence, gore, and lots and lots of naughty words. If you can't handle that, go somewhere else. And now, on with the story, or whatever other crap I decide to come up with. Chapter 3 Chief of Police Randy Thompson wished that he hadn't answered that phone. There were a million other things he would rather be doing than going to a crime scene. What in the hell was a murder scene doing in Niagara anyway? That was one of the reasons he'd gone after the Niagara job in the first place. Nothing ever happened here. He was dealing with a homicide for the first time in the three years since he'd become chief of police. He didn't really know what to expect. He'd never been in this position before. He'd taken all of the classes, studied all of the material, and found that he still wasn't confident that he could do this properly. He passed two kids who were on their way to school. He looked at them carefully, knowing that anybody could be his witness, or his suspects. He recognized them both. The one on the left was the son of Gary Rangel. His name escaped them at the moment. The kid on the right was impossible to forget. He had shared a few experiences in the last few years with Nathan Paulson, none of which were good. He was convinced that Nathan was one bad apple. He pulled up to the house where an officer who responded to a report of shots being fired had discovered the bodies. Another officer, a county cop, lifted the police tape so he could drive his car inside the barricade. He grabbed his forensics evidence kit, which was nothing more than an old tackle box filled with brushes, powders, camera, film, and other items used for retrieving evidence from crime scenes. As he lifted it, he wished that the tackle box actually carried fishing supplies and that he was out on the lake. He repeated this thought that there were a million other things that he would rather be doing than coming to a crime scene of a triple homicide. He entered the house. He listened for other officers, trying to determine where the murders had taken place. He could hear that most of them were upstairs. Before joining them, he studied his surroundings. He studied the landscape, creating a floor plan in his mind. He saw the way the kitchen was set off to the left of the living room. He saw the small table with a half-eaten bowl of cereal on top. He saw the open door leading away from the living room into a den or bathroom. When he'd taken in everything that he needed to see, he moved towards the stairs, intending on joining the investigation upstairs. If that was the murder scene, that would be where he would learn the most about what happened. As he walked up the stairs, one of his officers was on his way down. His face looked as white as Casper the Friendly Ghost. His hands covered his mouth as if he were about to lose his breakfast all over the stairs. Lewis, Randy said, trying to get the officer's attention, then stopped. He stepped aside, letting Lewis pass him. He decided that it was better that Lewis get out of the house before he contaminated any of the evidence. The last thing he needed was an outsider poking their noses around his department because of contaminated evidence. In a crime as big as this, he wanted to make sure that everything went as smoothly as possible. With Lewis past him, Randy continued up the stairs. Once he reached the top of the stairs, he froze. Directly in front of him was a large blood puddle resembling the shape of the largest man Randy had ever seen. The blood gave off the putrid smell of death, something that Randy had failed to get used to over the years. It was a smell he didn't like. 
His stomach churned, making him feel sick. A photographer approached him, handing him three Polaroids. Randy took them and started his examination as the photographer made his leave back the way he came. They were photos of the body that had been discovered right there. He examined each of the photos carefully, trying to find something that popped out at him as being important. The man in the Polaroids had to be well over six feet tall and must have weighed near 300 pounds. The idea that somebody could have killed this man left him astounded. His eyes then focused on the second photo and what could have made Lewis as queasy as he was. His stomach churned when he saw a close-up shot of the inside of Brian Norman's throat. Strands of tendons and ligaments were visible through an unnaturally large hole. The third Polaroid was a closer image of the inside of the throat, revealing Brian's vertebrae in a small pool of blood. Deep gashes were visible in the bone, making this crime even more perplexing than he'd first thought. He'd never seen anything like it. What? he started to say, but choked. The smell of death weighed down the air like a wet blanket, forcing his lungs to strain. He tried again. What do we have? A young officer, on loan from Iron Mountain, stood from his examination of the bloody puddle. He shook Randy's hand with a firm grip. Doug Gordon, I-M-P-D, the man said, taking the time to clearly state each letter in the acronym for the Iron Mountain Police Department. We have a triple homicide. Brian Norman was here, and his son Jesse Norman was down the hallway. His eyes moved further down the hall, taking aim on where a teenager had been lying face down on the floor not all that long before. Blood had dried in a dark red circle. I've only briefly had the chance to examine the bodies, but it appears that they were killed by the same weapon, Doug continued. The third body, belonging to Carol Norman, was in the bedroom at the end of the hall. She was killed by the same weapon, but never made it out of bed. She may have been sleeping when she was attacked. Randy's mind went to work, taking in all of the information that he'd acquired in the short amount of time he'd been there. His brain started piecing the fragments of the information together. A story developed in his mind, a tale of how things could have happened. There was a half-eaten bowl of cereal downstairs, Randy said to Doug. My guess is that the big guy, Brian, had gone downstairs for a mid-morning snack. An intruder had taken his opportunity to attack his wife, but woke the kid and alerted Brian in the meantime. The boy went to investigate and got it. Brian made it to the top of the stairs, and then he got it. The killer must have picked him off one at a time. That's about what I first thought, Doug said. That's pretty good, seeing as you don't see crimes like this here. He paused, taking a deep breath. I found evidence that corroborates with our theory, but adds details. I found bloody imprints on the floor, telling me that both Jesse and Brian had made it into the bedroom. Jesse's throat was, uh, cut out while he was still in the bedroom. He escaped and was likely met by his father where he fell. Brian must have gone in to confront the intruder. We found a gun in there. I've been told by witnesses that it may have been fired. Randy remembered that somebody had reported hearing shots fired. So, he eventually tries to make a run for it, but makes it no further than where he ended up here. Bloody footprints run from near his wife's body to the spot here. Randy examined the floor and saw the footprints. How could he have missed them originally? He was nervous. Maybe he was too quick to rush to judgment. You don't look so good, Doug said, looking at him with a strange expression. Didn't get much sleep, Randy lied. The truth was that he didn't like how this was going. 
Three people were dead in his town, and he knew that there would be more than a thousand people all wondering if they were going to be safe enough to go to bed tonight. He didn't know what to tell them. Nothing close to as bad as this had happened on his watch, and he really didn't know what to say to a group of people from a small town like this. He imagined that this would be just another day at the office for people in cities like Green Bay, Milwaukee, or Chicago. Hell, even Iron Mountain sees a murder roughly once a year. Iron Mountain was roughly five times larger than Niagara, and subsequently had a different outlook on what a community was supposed to be. He needed to figure out how to handle this, and needed to do it fast before things spiraled out of control. Why don't you go look at the writing and take some pictures, Doug said. I'll handle the bodies and tell your guys from Aranet get here. Randy was about to say thanks when something Doug had said caught his attention. Had he said something about writing? What writing? Nobody told you about the writing? Doug asked, a devious smile spreading across his face. Go into the back bedroom and have a look for yourself. Randy looked down at the case he was carrying. Through all the excitement, he'd forgotten about his tackle box. He carried it down the hall, being careful not to step in any of the bloody footprints. He wanted to preserve them so he could get pictures of them. He entered the bedroom. Several more officers were attending to where Carol Norman's body had been. He turned and came face to face with the writing that Doug had told him about. He froze, not knowing what to make of it. It was unlike anything he'd ever seen before. It was cryptic and confusing at the same time. What did it mean? What was the purpose? His mind swirled in a pool of confusion as he read the message again and again. On the wall was a message written in blood. It stood over two feet tall with streaks of blood running downwards towards the floor. The message read, Death has come. Chapter 4 Jason was never as happy to be at school as he was right then. He couldn't believe how annoying Nathan Paulson had been. He wouldn't shut up about the supposed murders during the entire walk to school. None of that mattered. He was more concerned about how the rest of the school would react if what Nathan said was true. More specifically, he was concerned about how the other students were going to react to the death of Jesse Normand. He'd known Jesse since they were in preschool together, and even had shared two classes with him this year. They hadn't been the best of friends, but there was a common understanding there that was undeniable. That wouldn't be said for many others. Jesse was a popular kid, and was well-liked by almost everybody. His death would likely have a profound impact on many people in the school. He wondered if school would be canceled after the news made it to the principal's office. He grabbed the book he needed out of his locker. It was his geometry book. He was about to close the locker when a large hand gripped his shoulder. He turned slowly and saw that Dave Grimes was looking down at him with a shit-eating grin on his face. David Grimes was Jason's best friend. They'd done almost everything together for the last five years. From talking about sports and girls to collecting baseball cards, they shared nearly the exact same interests as one another. I suppose you've heard the news, Dave said, sounding more somber than his normal upbeat banter. The shit-eating grin was gone. Couldn't help but hear it, Jason said. They live less than a block away, and Nathan Paulson decided to ramble on about it the entire walk here. Ah, oh, man, Dave laughed. The laugh sounded strained. You had to walk to school with Nathan Paulson. Who did you piss off to get stuck with that piece of garbage? Like I know. Yeah, well, listen to this. 
I just heard a rumor that they're going to have some counselors coming into the school later today to help us deal with our grief. Dave playfully moved his hands to his eyes and pretended to wipe away tears. I think that I'm going to get me a free shrink session to see if I'm crazy or not. My mom says I don't have to. She's already had me tested. Hugh, go right ahead, Jason told him, not wanting any part of the counselor. I was kind of hoping that they'd call off school for the day. I heard that's an option, Dave said. That wouldn't surprise me in the least. They probably have some state maintain minimum amount of time that they have to meet before they can send us home. They probably have to offer us counseling to make sure that we're not all going to go home and put guns in our mouths or hair dryers in our bathtubs. I'm sure the last one is very popular with the ladies. I'm sure it is, Jason said, joking as the bell rang. They instinctively started walking towards the geometry class. We still on for basketball later? Probably. Unless the shrink realizes that I really am crazy, and they lock me away in the nuthouse with one of those sweaters that let you give yourself a big hug. Jason chuckled, wondering what it would be like if Dave did wind up in a padded room with a cozy white sweater that buttoned from behind. Dave was a good friend, but as strange of one as there could be. He was a good guy in many ways, but there were a few things about him that made Jason cringe. To start with, he was certifiably insane. Jason had once seen him, on a dare, run through two feet of snow in freezing temperatures, wearing nothing but his underwear and a smile on his face. It was the most frightening image Jason had ever seen concerning a friend, something that years of therapy could never erase. His thoughts were forced aside by commotion up ahead. It was coming from around the corner, near the spot where the geometry room was located. He walked faster while Dave hung back. He wanted to figure out what was happening. He turned the corner, the commotion becoming clearer. He was then able to identify that it was crying that he heard. Not just any crying, however. It was the sound of multiple girls crying at the same time. Jason raced into the geometry room, not knowing what to expect. He stopped dead in his tracks when he saw what was causing the commotion. He should have known better. Standing at the head of the class was none other than Nathan Paulson. It seemed that his tactics were having a profound effect on the girls of Hour One Geometry. They took him out on a fucking stretcher, Nathan said, still not noticing that Jason was there. It was a white sheet with a big fucking red spot located right above where his face should have been. He expressed the size by moving his hands outwards. I couldn't believe all of the blood. Stop, please stop, a crying voice said from the back of the class. Jason looked to see that the girl pleading was Allison Rouse. She was a beautiful girl that Jason had secretly liked for the last two years. He thought of her as an angel sent down from heaven. She didn't look much like an angel right now, however. Her face was red and puffy underneath her eyes. The whites of her eyes were now pink from her crying. Her cheeks were streaked with tears. The makeup she'd worn was streaked and moving down her face with her tears. Can you guys even imagine what happened to him? Nathan continued, as if she hadn't said anything at all. Somebody probably put a gun to his face and pulled the goddamn trigger. Who do you think did it? I personally think that it was his dad. He probably snapped and killed Jesse, Jesse's mom, then turned the gun around and ate the bullet he'd saved for himself. Would you please stop? Allison cried, more forcibly this time. Nathan again took no notice. I bet he found out that his wife was screwing another guy. Jesse knew about it and was concealing it from him. That's why he... You've been asked to stop, Jason shouted, interrupting Nathan before he could finish. 
He'd already listened to this once. He couldn't handle hearing it again. I had to listen to this nonsense for 20 minutes already. You don't know what you're talking about, so don't start spreading rumors about this shit until we find out what actually happened. Jason watches Nathan's face turn from shock into anger in less than a second. Who the fuck do you think you are? Nathan asked him angrily. Why would a little piece of shit like you think that you can talk to me that way? This isn't something that we should be talking about, Jason told him. He wasn't going to back down from this. Too many people were upset from Nathan's actions, including him. Somebody had to stop Nathan. Many of these people were Jesse's friends. They're all shocked that he's gone. You don't need to be talking about this when you don't have any clue as to what happened other than you were across the street when it happened. You've already changed your story since you told me 20 minutes ago. What's next? You going to say that Bigfoot broke in and murdered them in their sleep? I told you, I heard gunshots. You probably did, Jason agreed. Don't tell them that. Wait until the right time. Nathan approached slowly. He walked with a crooked smile spread across his face. His eyes gleamed with hatred and his fists tightened until his knuckles became white. Jason assumed a defensive posture in case this got out of hand. I am so sick of you, Nathan said, his voice lowering to a growl. I tried to be nice to you. Something that is nearly impossible to do with a freak like you. And you have to go and ruin it by running your mouth like a whiny bitch. The second bell rang, introducing them to the new school day. As others ran to their seats, neither Nick nor Jason moved. Jason knew that their teacher, Mr. Craze, was notoriously late. He suspected that this morning would be no different, especially since all of the teachers had been spotted in the main office, involved in a meeting. Leave him alone, a voice said from so close that Jason's heart nearly missed a beat. It was Allison. She'd walked up to them from her seat and gotten herself into a conversation that looked as if it could get very physical very quickly. He's right. You shouldn't be talking about Jesse or his family like that. Shut up, you little whore! Nathan shouted, then swung outward with his right hand. His swing hit Allison in the side of her head. Allison stumbled backwards, then fell to the ground. Her hands went to where Nathan had struck her, covering the wound protectively as she howled in pain. The next 45 seconds of Jason Rangel's life was filled with an anger that flowed through his body like gasoline. It fueled him, giving him the strength and determination to do something that he normally wouldn't have had the guts to do. Jason slammed his fist into the side of Nathan's face, catching the bigger kid off balance. Nathan staggered backwards, trying to get his hands in front of him to block the attack. Jason was too quick as he landed a barrage of rights and lefts, slamming his knuckles repeatedly into Nathan's face. If Nathan managed to block a shot, the next slammed into his face with even more force and determination than the last. Nathan's staggering increased as his balance weakened. Jason cocked back, ready to put everything he had into one last right-handed shot. Before he released, he looked at Nathan and noticed that he was no longer defending himself. His hands hung limply at his side, and his face had a bloody blanket that covered his features. His nose was bent awkwardly to the right. He was unconscious on his feet. All at once, Jason's anger drifted away. His pity for Nathan prevented him from landing the last punch. He found that it was unnecessary to add insult to the injury he'd already inflicted. Nathan's legs wobbled, then gave way. He fell backwards, slamming into a table that was occupied by two students. 
They backed away just in time, avoiding getting splashed in Nathan's blood. Jason took little notice as his attention returned to Allison. She was lying on the floor, holding her face with shaking hands. Jason knelt beside her, placing a hand on her shoulder. You okay? he asked tenderly. She looked at him for a moment, fear filling her eyes. Then, as if a switch had been flipped, her expression softened. She returned to looking like the girl he'd known and secretly had a crush on. I'm fine, she said, her tears weakening. Jason held out his hand, helping her get back to her feet. It only hurts a little. As she returned to standing on her own, she glanced down at Jason, then took a quick step back as if she were infected with a deadly disease. My God, does that hurt? She asked, looking down at him. What? He asked, then saw what she was looking at. He lifted his hands and studied his knuckles. The skin on both knuckles had been broken open. Blood gushed from both wounds. He looked towards Allison and realized that he'd gotten blood on her. I'm so sorry. Don't be, she said, approaching him and taking his hands into hers. She studied the knuckles as if she were a nurse. You should go down to the office. I think that you might need stitches. He's going to the office, all right, a new voice said from the front of the class. Jason turned quickly to see Mr. Cray standing at the head of the class. He looked extremely upset. How long had he been standing there? Probably long enough to see the final product of what he'd done to Nathan. I want you to go to the office right now, Mr. Cray shouted. I don't see you avoiding suspension after what you did. Suspension? Alice asked him. You can't do that. He was defending me. Nathan punched me and... I don't really care how this fight started, Mr. Cray said, interrupting her. All I know is that I saw Jason put a beating on Nathan that was nothing short of excruciating. I will not have that sort of behavior in my classroom, especially after the tragedy of this morning. Get down to the office and get those knuckles looked at. I'll send a note down explaining things to Mr. Griffin in about ten minutes. There was a pause, as if he were expecting Jason to defend himself. He didn't. Go! Jason removed his hands from Allison's. He hadn't felt any pain in them before, but now noticed that they were starting to sting. He imagined that it wouldn't be long before they were in a lot of pain. It was worth it, he thought. He scanned the crowd, seeing mixed reactions on their faces. Some looked at him in shock, while others stared at him with a mix of terror and excitement. Dave was in the group of shock. Jason hadn't actually seen him enter the room. He stood near the back, about as far away from the fight as he could get. He stood there with a look of fear on his face. What was he afraid of? Him? That was foolish. He disregarded the thought as he left the geometry class for the last time. He did as he was told and walked to the office. He wasn't really sure how his principal was going to react. After losing his temper, he was going to take whatever reasonable punishment was coming his way. He deserved to be punished for what he did, but also rewarded for protecting Allison. All that had happened was he'd accidentally taken it too far this time. As he entered the office, Jason suspected that Nathan was going to get away with what he'd done to Allison with little to no repercussions. That's how things worked in Niagara. Nathan would be rewarded for his injuries, while the defender of the damsel in distress would be persecuted for his tactics. It was nothing less than what he'd expect from this town and this school. He suddenly became very glad that he would be leaving for college in a little over a year. He had every intention of getting as far away from this town as he could. It was a cancer that was trying to eat him and everybody else whole. 
He had no idea just how true that really was. You've been listening to the Going Postal Cast. For updates about Christopher Chapman, his stories, and future podcast happenings, be sure to go to goingpostalpublishing.com. If you want to follow along on Twitter, twitter.com slash goingpostalpub, or like him at facebook.com slash goingpostalpublishing. This podcast is copyright 2012, Going Postal Publishing. 